This podcast is proudly supported by Drama Victoria. Consider becoming a Drama Victoria member today to take advantage of the many member benefits. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land this podcast was recorded on. We record on the land of the Bunurong people and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're speaking with two members of the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child's creative team, John Shearman, Associate Movement Director, and David Spencer, the Resident Director. Today we will discuss the production from a theatre studies perspective, so we may leave the gushing about how magnificent this production is off mic. That being said, this marvellous production has created true magic on stage and is an incredible theatrical achievement. The fact that Australian cast and creatives were part of remounting this worldwide phenomenon is a testament to our love and passion for creating innovative and meaningful theatre. This episode is more tailored to the Unit 4 questions that I asked during the interview. I suggest you listen to the entire interview as some questions overlap, but these are the Unit 4 questions as I see them. Without further ado, I bring you John Shearman and David Spencer. Welcome to the podcast, John Shearman and David Spencer. Hi there, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. I really appreciate your time. It means a lot to us. Uh, Great. We might move on to uh, asking questions about Unit 4 that have a slightly different focus. They focus more on um, the acting and direction and design and how they work together. So the questions I'm going to ask here are slightly different. And thank you so very much for your outstanding responses so far. Um, Could you describe the contrasting uh, status, motivation, and characteristics of Draco and Scorpius? Uh, I think if if I can start with that one, I think they both are characters who are set up with a higher than usual social status to begin with. Draco is, um, is... is, is aristocracy. He's part of the higher end of the, the wizarding world in a social sense, and by birth, Scorpius is part of that. Um, but Scorpius, uh, at the same time, is not fitting in. And uh, so in one sense, he's from this aristocracy and he is a little bit untouchable, and we see that uh, even though he's socially awkward and 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 that's what he has in common with Albus, we notice that Albus is the one who is more clearly being bullied because um, I think people are frightened of 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 Scorpius, whereas they really see um, see Albus as being fair game and and, and an easy target uh, in in the school world of of sort of the of Hogwarts and, and and the social world within that. So I think that both Draco and Scorpius have a set status by birth. Um, and I think uh, Scorpius socially has a has a lower status by by nature, and it's that that um, gives him a, a commonality with Albus that starts off their, I guess their their ease with interacting with one another. Yeah, I, I think in, in the world of the show too, like um, Draco is potentially recovering from the events of the book of the book series, um, and we've learned all these things that happened to him. Like he's he's met his wife and she's passed away, and he's he's got to got this cotton wool protection around his son 
he's really defensive. Like the first time we see him is on platform nine and three quarters and he's asking Harry for a favor to, um, to protect his son a little bit more from the community, community, community at large. And um, I think there's what we're seeing straight away. There is a real contrast from the Draco we knew from the books and the films um, he's grown. Um, and while he's got this higher status, he's, he's, he's using it in a different way than he used to. Um, and I think what we see in Scorpius is because you expect a Malfoy, like in the, in the original books, Draco's introduction is pretty memorable. He's pretty dislikable. And I think what we've done in the show, what happens in the show is we have this complete contrast when Scorpius is introduced, he's so lovable and likable. And it's this, um, <laughs> complete 180 from what we got in the books. And I, I, I think turning this show becomes about the Malfoys in a way because um, you're subverting the audience's expectation of them. Like Draco is dislikable at first, but he's asking for a, a, a really positive thing to protect his son. He's, um, he's motivated by good um, and uh, by love. And I think Draco's motivation throughout the entire show is just motivated for the love and um, for his child and to protect him. Um, and I think that shows, and you've got this wonderful character who's so beloved, like Scorpius is the breakout role in the show, I think. Um, and the audience just embrace him. Um, and I think that's a major part of what this show has done with the Malfoys is to subvert the audience, ex audience's expectation of what the, who the Malfoys are. And the show does it so beautifully as well. Absolutely. I'm lucky enough to be good friends with Will McKenna, who created the role or work created the role in that first uh, production of Harry Potter. What an incredible show. Mm. Um, I'm just wondering, why does Albus want to save Cedric, do we think? Oh, I think Albus sees himself as having things in common with Cedric. He says it himself. He says, you know, he, he, the, the word spare resonates with, uh, within Albus. I think he is is lost and he doesn't see himself as having a clear identity as, he, as he's, he's really trying to find that part of himself and yeah. find that sense of purpose. And I think he sees the, the way that Voldemort has looked upon him as being, uh, as Cedric, as being a, a spare and thinks that's exactly how I feel. I feel, I feel unnecessary. I feel purposeless. I feel, um, uh, you, you know, expendable. And I also think there's part of Albus that's constantly comparing himself to his father and and being reminded um, by others of his father's, um, his father's adventures and his father's um, incredible achievements. And I think he sees that as an opportunity to perhaps show his own ability to do something good for the world. So I think in a practical sense, he finds himself an adventure, but he also finds himself a purpose. Um, and so I think in many ways, he uses that sense of identification with Cedric um, in his um, in his quest to, to find um, some meaning within his own life. Beautiful. Thank you so very much. 
How would you say the actors playing Snape and Rose have used their acting skills, so their facial expressions, their voice, their gestures, their movements, maybe even stillness and silence, to bring their characters to life? Ooh. Uh, look, a lot of this too, a lot of their physicality, I find, particularly with the Snapes, is informed by their costume. Um, the costume is so long and flowing and it requires a certain amount of care to move in it properly. It requires a certain amount of um, foresight and planning. Um, and I think that really informs Snape. Like you, you have this wonderful image, like they're all, all our actors who play Snape are so tall, but they're quite um, still in their performances. Um, and I think that's, <laughs> um, I think that costume has really informed that, but also to, um, in comparison to someone like Scorpius, a lot of this, all their scenes as Snape are played opposite Scorpius, who's this really highly energetic, um, fast moving character. And I think having that contrast there on stage, this older, wiser figure who does maintain the stillness and the silence um, really benefits in, in that way. Um, there's always, Snape is always measured and deliberate. Um, Rose, look, I think you've got this incredible design for her with those puffs on her head, those pom-poms that her hair is done in these big um uh, kind of like puffs I suppose we call them and uh that cloak as well any short sharp movements really uh, <laughs> make that character seem like she it's a little pocket rocket um we want to see her as Hermione we want to imagine her as Hermione was 20 years ago um and I think the actors who come into Rose are front-footed um really front-footed with a high energy and drive the dialogue are really successful. Um, but everything's always open up for interpretation, but I really find the actors who step into those roles with that intention are successful. Oh, thank you so very much. Amazing detail there. Thank you. Uh, can you think of a moment where the actors manipulate their focus to enhance the intended meaning of the work? I think about the gossip scene where rumors are spreading and how the actors look, how, how the actors looks just tell us so much about what we need to know without words. Does focus help us understand in that moment? Yeah, I, I talk a lot about this moving director. I talk a lot to the actors about this um, in certain moments of the show. Lemmings is one. That's the the staircase scene where they're passing the notes back and forth. Another one for me is staircase ballet because um, these are moments where you have actors manipulating an object on stage in full view of the audience, then actors manipulating the staircase and we're making believe that that's the moving staircase in Hogwarts. Um, but one of the principles I find with that is that for the actors on stage, if they are throwing their focus to where we want the audience to be looking, automatically we're directing the audience's attention there. So all those people in the staircase ballet are looking at those two boys on the stairs and they're taking in that story. And it's kind of almost like switching off a little light in that performer. So the audience kind of goes, okay, you know what? I've thrown my focus to where they are as well. Um, and Lemmings is a really specific um, example of that where the cast on stage are throwing their focus back and forth. And it's just, human nature we follow <laughs> someone points you look in that direction as well you check out what's happening um and that was working conjunction with um chris fisher and lee cohen who are illusionists on the show um that was a collaboration of trying to figure out when we are throwing focus and where to at what time <laughs> yeah, right I think, um, sorry to interrupt you, Nick. Mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a really interesting scene, the, the staircase ballet, because we 
we go into this scene having seen the um, the relationship between uh, Scorpius and and Albus, you know, become uh, fractured, <clears throat> and it's such a dreamy sort of scene. It, it's a it's it's it really is a ballet. It was. Uh, John knows a lot more about this part of the movement than than I do, but it was actually it was a scene on stairs that that was a scene with dialogue. And... Yeah, originally there was dialogue from what I've been told in that scene, and just gradually it was removed until so, yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that that was really um, that's that's a beautiful example of how two people can be on stage and say nothing but tell the story that uh, that a written scene could do just simply by being moved around, but also by looking at each other or looking away from each other or looking for one another or looking where one another ha have been or might be going to. Um, and that's the interesting thing about that scene is we see them look for one another and then they appear and we see them look at where um, the other one is going and we see that person disappear in that direction. We see them looking for one another. They, they appear again at the top of the stairs. Um, and there's so much about just that, um, the, those sort of signpostings of, of emotions in that scene that then are delivered to us in movement that, that tell the story really effectively without any language. I think the music is a massive part of that scene as well. Like, it, it gives us that emotional catharsis and takes us on that journey with the actors and all they have, as you said, Dr. David, they all they have to do is look at each other and it, we ride with it. And I oh, know, boy, do we. Absolutely. Yeah. Many, many of my students' favourite moment um, is, the, is the staircase ballet. It's beautiful. Um, I would like to talk briefly about how the actors utilise the performance space. It's, I mean, from the pool under the stage to flying high above the audience. I mean, the space is used wonderfully throughout the space and there's probably uses of spaces we don't see. Perhaps there are people moving the mazes. Perhaps there aren't. I don't know. You don't have to tell us. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I appreciate there's probably movement happening that we're not aware of. Um, but, but a moment I feel like where no secrets will be revealed uh, is in the ministry scene where Hermione and Harry are placed above the other ministers of magic and Draco is his um, downstage right um, with his back to everyone. Is is is, is this a, a great example of the actors utilising the performance space or do you feel like there's another moment? I, I think that, I think it is an exact, a, a really good example of that. I think we, clearly going into the ministry, um, Hermione, Harry, Ginny, um, even Ron have, have probably all been together deciding what they need to do to get everybody together to realize um as as one group that something is afoot something is happening there's danger um out there and we need to get together and make a plan and having them come in front of all of the ministers and stand above them immediately um, tells us this is important this is uh, a moment where we need to show leadership but just the fact that Draco turns up, he's not a minister, but he uses his, his influence and his, um, his, his, um, his, his born status to be there and is able to disrupt that and absolutely um, sort of dislocate all of those intentions that 
uh, were established or were tried tried to be established at the beginning of the scene is a is a great way to um, to manipulate space and manipulate status uh, really effectively. Um, and it, it's I I love in that scene the way that you know we we have this really strong picture of Hermione and and Harry on top of those stairs and at the end it all it all, almost that that whole scene falls apart as the stairs are pulled away from each other into darkness and they descend those stairs and there's just this general sort of grumbling and shouting and and basically you know a, a shattered plan and I remember early on in the rehearsals having a chat with John Tiffany about some of those scenes and why they were directed the way they were and he said that he really dislikes when things are opened up for staging, staging purposes, you know, when um, actors cheat out and open up to an audience. Um, and he was like, look, we can establish the exact same intention, but play a bit more naturally. So that moment of Draco having his back to the audience um, gives him so much power <laughs> um, because it forces Harry and Hermione from up high to look down at him. And even though the audience is just getting the back of a blonde wig, all our focus is on him in that moment. Um, and I think that happens a lot in the play as well, where we don't open it up um, and the actors can throw to each other across the stage. And I think modern audiences are maybe a bit more, um, a bit more accepting of that and um, go along with it a lot more. And in terms of the space itself to look like the staircase gives us that massive elevation. So we can play scenes up high. Um, Cause most of the time you see that the princess theater is a massive space. Um, the proscenium, I'm not sure how high it is, but usually in most shows, that's a bit of dead space. So you're playing just on the stage and anything above things are flown in. Um, but unless you've got a set that builds another level, you don't ever get to use that space. Um, and I think part of this show was, making it seem like the whole audience had been taken um, to Hogwarts or to the Wizarding World. And that starts from the foyer with a carpet and the light fixtures and um, the seating, <laughs> the Harry Potter carpet. Um, and there are moments in the show, as you said, that the Dementors, um, parts of the show where it extends out over the audience, either through lighting um, or moments where characters walk through the audience. And I think that's all part of it, making the audience feel like they're their part of the world. Uh, there's a moment that is always really effective and I don't know if anyone really knows it's happening, but when um, Scorpius and Albus see Hogwarts for the first time and they're standing on stage, centre stage, and the forest is kind of opening and clearing behind them and Imogen Heap's got this incredible piece of music and the lights flare and for the first time the auditorium is illuminated and we've got these amazing stained glass windows on the side there too, which have a big H for Hogwarts in them. And it's just this small moment that we constantly have to remind the actors is really important. Because um, when I saw the show, it's just this moment of emotional catharsis. I felt like I was really there with Scorpius and Albus looking at Hogwarts. Um, and it's all those, little, all those little techniques come together to take the audience to that point. Um, but what it requires is the actors to hold their nerve and to not deliver their next line, to let this piece of music really fill the space and the denouement, to let it kind of fade off before they begin their next bit of dialogue. Um, and I think that happens a lot of different points throughout the show. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I think there's a real 
intention of opening up and using as much space as we can and making people feel that the the wizarding world isn't just on the stage but is all around them and and could be anywhere and and change at any time and i think you know the the points at which i i see that being really intentionally done is obviously with the the dementor who comes out into the audience um at the end of act one but also when we go into Delphi's room and we're discovering um, her, her, her writings on the wall and then we see gradually all of that writing become uh, lit up in, in UV around the, the rest of the auditorium, it really encapsulates you within that space and within that magic and within that danger, I think, as well, which is a really effective way of of using space and also extending that sense of um, of, of magic and uh, and also making people sort of doubt where they're safe and where where they where they where they're not um, you know and another example is having having um, Voldemort walk through the crowd I mean I think that's that's a, a, a really an age-old tactic to 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 bring that um that sense of danger towards an audience but also at that particular point in the show you know we've already established that the magic within the space can be anywhere and with him coming out and into the audience and and trying to sort of avoid any um any you know uh i guess um i guess disney-like um a villainous sort of uh, portrayal of him actually making people aware that um, something else is is drawing them in really enhances that that sensation of, of 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 danger and risk around the place. And I think we do that in subtle ways throughout the show. Like it's done really subtly. Like the sound design from the beginning. I the Forbidden Forest when we meet Bane the Centaur. To me, that moment always. <laughs> no matter where I sit in the auditorium, I get a different experience of it because the sound design makes you feel like you're part of the forest and there is or you in the forest there's a certain point in the dress circle where i've sat before where it literally sounds like there's a creature in the bushes behind you and it's really unsettling <laughs> it makes you feel like you're actually part of the space it, it yeah uh, absolutely the, the students in unit four also have to think about how we uh, manipulate the actor audience relationship and i've got a question about that in, in a moment but i think even lots of your responses they've been really helpful in understanding um and how you manipulate that throughout the work. Um, so thank you so very much. So many fantastic examples. Um, I, I wonder if we can uh, pivot to thinking about how language is used in the script to convey the playwrights or the director's intended meaning. Um, so the script has changed a lot to make the relationship between Albus and Scorpius more clear. Uh, the meaning of the work has become not only about accepting the past and your present, but also about accepting who you are and being loved for it. What do you think are some key moments that you think exemplify this or even key lines or bits of dialogue from the script? Uh, the first thing that jumps into my mind is just the relationship between Albus and Scorpius is never really talked about directly until the final scene. We we have a feeling that something is going on. You know, they 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 immediately have this um, this real ease with one another from the Hogwarts Express one where they they meet and um and scorpius is so disarming and 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 
Albus chooses to stay to later on when we see the the tension between the two of them and and it's only through through really um, challenging moments that they're forced to actually verbalize what's going on. Um, you know, when when Snape and Scorpius are uh, are outside of Hogwarts and the Dementors are circling, it's only at that mo that moment when Snape says, "Who are you fighting for? Who are you fighting for?" This is a life and death situation, and Scorpius says, "Albus, I I think it's Albus." Um, you know, there's a real sense of our difficulty in being able to verbalize what we're feeling, a reluctance to verbalize what we're feeling, and um, uh, a, a fear of doing so. And later on, um, you know, in in the in the church, even Ginny, who knows that um, Albus and and Scorpius have um, this incredible. Um, friendship and, and burgeoning relationship even she has difficulty verbalizing it for him and says you know I can see you found wonderful clarity and it makes me very proud of you but we're still not saying what it is and even on the stairs the final staircase um, you know we're, we're in a situation where, where, where Rose says to Albus you know, this is this is only going to be weird if you if you let it be weird. Are you okay, Albus? And once again, there's a real difficulty verbalizing it. And finally, we see Albus in um, Beautiful Hill saying to his dad, "You know, Scorpius is the most important person in my life, um, and he may always be so." And and we hear, um, you know, we hear Harry say, and, and you know, and. And I think that that's a good thing. And, and that sort of sense of acceptance, it's just such a long, painful journey that I think a lot of people in the audience can relate to. And by drawing it out in that way, I think it really enhances the importance of that relationship, the difficulty that's still faced by people with um, this sort of, in this situation. And, um, and it just makes it all that much sweeter to finally have that sort of sense of acceptance that we can move on from this and we're moving on to a better place. I think Jack Thorne's choices as well in the way he's structured the play and, and the language he's chosen to use um, really helps in that way too. Like Jack, Jack comes from a TV background and I find that a lot of our scenes are written like, like a TV show. You pick up um, you don't get an introduction to the scene like you maybe do it in a traditional play. You pick up exact in, in the middle of the action um, in each scene, um, and the actors are. Uh, there's not really much subtext going on. They're saying the what we like to say a lot is the thought is on the line. The actors are synthesizing and saying the lines as they get the information coming into them. So there's not a lot of um, tactics or sub subtext happening where they're trying to win or get something, and I think that's. Um, at times, it's really different to traditional thing like Greek, um, like Greek theatre or Shakespeare. We always say, "Oh, that character comes on and goes." Oh, that thing happened off stage. Whereas in our show, we show what happened on stage. We show it happening, and the actors respond to it in real time. Um, so those language choices are something that just allows the audience. What, the actors are kind of saying what the audience are experiencing at the same time, um, and I think that. 
Jack is really clever in that he's chosen a lot of modern colloquial colloquial language that um, allows our audiences, particularly a lot of people are first time theatre goers. It's pretty disarming. It allows them to come in and just and take it on. It you consume it like a TV show. Yeah, it's it. I mean, it's a terrific to watch and and be part of and hear that language being used and helping us experience that along with the characters on stage. I couldn't agree more. Um, from I mean, I'm just talking from an audience perspective that we picked that up. We see that it's working. It's working. Hmm. Uh, so, are there clear examples? Do you feel of elements of theatre composition in the piece? I mean, motion is used throughout, and you talk about it beautifully to establish mood and setting and character. I mean, look at the contrast between the start of Act One and the start of Act Two, Hogwarts in these two alternate worlds. Um, can you talk about a moment where rhythm was really important? Um, things that jump out at me are perhaps the maze scene on the Quidditch pitch or maybe the energy of the race mixed with the quiet moment between Cedric and Albus about his father. Do you think rhythm plays an important role in this piece? I, I think it does. And I think particularly in, in storytelling moments, um, we use rhythm to get a sense of excitement um, and an, a, a sense of um, of um really allowing the um, experience of finding a solution to be that much more apparent to the audience. The first thing that I think comes to mind is when Scorpius and Albus are in Godric's Hollow and they're lost without a time turner, you notice that that scene starts off so so they're so lost they don't really they they they're looking for a solution they they're almost at the point where they think we we may be lost and we may be lost here forever and then we see them work together and and Albus having the realization about the blanket which hasn't been touched in his room since he he left and coming together with Scorpius to work out that um if um, demiguys and the the love potion come together, they burn, and um, so that that realization of a solution. You notice that the tempo um, of that scene uh, goes from sort of this slowness to this clunkiness to this really fast rhythm, and um, by the end of it, we have this absolute sense of excitement because there's this possibility of of a solution and and them being saved. And I think they do that really, really cleverly with um with the script. Look, I think rhythm, it, it, like the whole show, we rely a lot on it. And whether it's about us, about the cast coming together and the crew coming together to decide what the rhythm of the show is. Like one example of that is the end of Act One, um, after the Dementors have flown and the big Voldemort banner has come in and there's a little sign flashes up to be continued to let the audience know that we're coming back for act two. And in the old two part, that meant go away, have dinner, come back for part two. <laughs> um, but the debates that raged in the auditorium during tech about when that sign was to flash up, because what it is is about pulling the audience along with you and building the excitement in them as well. So they've just had this incredible sequence with Dementors flying overhead and they all go crazy. Um, and there was a bit of trial and error to find when is the best point so to bring up that to be continued because we know that's going to set them into overdrive again. So you've got to let the audience kind of crest that wave of excitement and then it goes up to build it again. Um, and that, ha that happens a lots of different points throughout the piece. So finding the exact rhythm of an effect or a, a movement sequence or um, even the delivery of some information 
to the audience. Like you, you're teasing it out. You want the audience to be hanging on your every word. So if you're going to suspend the moment and then deliver the information, um, there's a lot of trial and error, but that's usually the way we go. <laughs> it's about bringing the audience with us. Uh, beautiful. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about how the actor-audience relationship is manipulated or established and maintained. This does appear to be a kind of a fourth wall piece for much of the show, but there's also great moments where the wall is broken and we're immersed in that world. How and when did you decide to do this? I mean, we talked about Voldemort exiting and the Dementors arriving and the words on the wall and, of course, the beautiful arrival at Hogwarts with that music. To what extent do you think there is a consistent relationship with the audience? I think without a relationship with the audience, obviously we, 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 we've failed. I think that we, we're in a position now in, you know, in, in, in 2023 to be able to use, um, you know, use lighting, use music, but also use other devices such as the digital world um, and to think in, in a more modern way about how we can really bring the audience into being a part of that story. So I think that's exactly why all of that um, decision to to perhaps move the the fourth wall to the back of the auditorium in some ways um, was was a deliberate choice to really create this world um, that included the audience so that th this experience was was constant and um, and uh, and and new, uh, I think that that was very much a deliberate um, device used right from the get go when the story was first conceived. Yeah, I agree. Beautiful. Um, this is our, our final question. Uh, so thank you so very much for your time today. Um, how do the actors, in your view, demonstrate the theatrical style of the production? And if we want to talk about other elements, we can. Do you think there is a defined theatrical style here beyond eclectic theatre using elements of lots of different theatre theater styles? Yeah. Is magic realism intentionally used, gothic theatre, something else? Look, I think we draw from a lot of different styles in the show. Like there are moments that like vaudevillian, um, moments are almost like um like the traditional fourth wall proscenium arch theater but then we also draw a lot from magic <laughs> and magic and illusion shows um and i i think that it's, it's it's more of a that all comes together to create unique style that is harry potter um without drawing from all those different places we wouldn't have that unique experience you have um and there are certain moments in the show where uh I've had to talk actors into <laughs> going with that style. Um, there's a moment in the ministry corridor where we really break into farce um, where Harry and Hermione, they had that body double switch and the other actors come on stage. And it, a lot of actors early on didn't really want to go down that path because it doesn't feel, it feels a bit naff at times um, to lean into all that really physical stylized comedy where you're looking left, right, up, down. Um, and it, it's about, getting the actors comfortable enough to understand that this play supports that um, and that the writing supports that and the style of it, it's actually got quite a wide bandwidth of what <laughs> is acceptable within the world. Um, and those moments, if we can bring them out and highlight them, just add to that eclectic nature. Like I think that's the world of Harry Potter. You've got those eclectic teachers at Hogwarts. Everything's a bit off kilter. Um, and I think that really works in the performance style. And further on from that, I think 
what's really important in this play is, you know, it, 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 it is a fantasy um, at heart. You know, there's there's nothing more exciting than for a, for an actor to be given permission, I think, to wear a cape and and to hold a a, a stick and be a, a powerful wizard. Mm. But there's so much in really imbuing that with um, a sense of realism as well. So we we create this this fantasy. We do all these um, magical tricks. But then in the middle of it, we come back down to just your basic naturalistic acting examples being um, the bedroom scene with with Harry and Ginny, um, the 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 bedroom scene with um, with Albus and Harry, and then later in the Slytherin dorm with with Harry and and Albus. You know, we we go back to really simple, traditional, realistic moments, which then I think make us believe more the the fantasy ones showing that these are actually actually real people who just happen to have extraordinary powers and I think that makes the whole story that much more credible uh, and I think that's a real intention in the piece as well to show the fantasy but also really um, anchor it down in in true problems and and truthful acting I think that's also too, we we always show the muggle world as being really kind of plain. Or anyone who's a muggle in this show is just really boring and not interesting. They don't even have dialogue. Um, and <laughs> that, then we get to contrast that with the wizarding world, which is so open and expansive and has so much variety in it. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for these extraordinary responses. Thank you um, for thinking about them so deeply and providing such specific examples. It means a lot, and I have no doubt it's going to help the students studying theatre studies at the moment. Thank you so much for your time today, John Shearman and David Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Huge thanks to John Shearman and David Spencer for giving us their time today and a big shout out to Lily Everest who made this conversation possible. There is still time to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, so book your tickets. There's a link in the episode description if you're keen. That is all for this episode of The Aside. There are a bucket load of episodes to listen to if you're interested, so feel free to go through our over 350 episodes to find one that piques your interest. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, or if you have a question for us, feel free to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you hugely to Haight-Libri for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening.